Thanks, Jesse. Thank you, guys. Thanks for being here today. We're going to uh, move forward in our Purpose Driven Life series, and I'm going to uh, ask you a question. We'll start with a question today, and it's an important one. What does a purpose-driven marriage look like? What does a purpose-driven Christian marriage look like? Last week we talked about what does a purpose-driven single look like, and I acknowledge that somewhere between 46 and 50% of our culture are single for a variety of reasons, and a, a large majority, uh, the rest of you, are uh, married. And I want to dig down a little bit on this topic, what does a Christian marriage look like? Now, you might not be married yet. You might have been married, and you're not sure you're ever going to get married again. Or maybe you'd like to get married, or you are and currently in a marriage. I, I believe you'll, there'd be something for you today to take home that will help you. Uh, we'll be in Colossians chapter 3 if you've got your Bible or your Bible app open to Colossians, the third chapter. We'll get there in just a moment. Uh, Probably, I don't know, 20 years ago or so, I was uh, in Portland, Oregon. I was pastoring a church there. Most of you know I coached as well at the high school level. And um, I got to know one of the teachers. Now, this guy wasn't a coach, but when you spend, I spent seven years coaching at high school level. When you spend that much time on campus, you get to know other people. And this guy knew I was a pastor. He was not a Christ follower, but he came to me and said, hey, uh, my fiance and I want to get married. Uh, would you guys, would you, would you consider officiating at our wedding? And I said, I'd be honored to do so. Uh, I'd done another wedding for another couple at the school. I said, that'd be great. I said, but you need to know I, I have a requirement. And it is that you go through premarital training. And he didn't shirk at that or give me too hard a time about that. I just said, listen, here's the reality. Statistically, those who go through premarital training have a much higher percentage of success in their marriage because we need to get started off the right foot. He said, no, no problem. I'd love to do that. And I said, well, okay, one more thing you need to know. I'm a Christian. I'm a pastor. And I believe in the Bible. So I'm going to use the Word of God. I'm going to teach you some biblical principles that may or may not make sense to you. I'll do my best to help you. And he said, nope, that's great. I understand. Well, we started through the process, and about uh, four weeks into it, I talk about forgiveness. Now, in uh, a marriage, forgiveness is huge. I'm going to talk about that this morning. But forgiveness is where, where we start our relationship with God. It's really the core in, in, in everything when it comes to beginning, establishing, having a healthy relationship with God or with people. So I talk about forgiveness, and I went through some of the stuff I'm going to cover with you this morning. And I got done. I said, hey, you guys have any questions? And they looked at each other, and they looked at me, and they said, well, uh, you know, for four weeks you've been talking to us about what a Christian marriage looks like. I'm nodding. And Christian principles to, to a marriage, I'm nodding. He said, the problem is we're not Christians. And I go, yeah, I know. He said, well, what can we do to resolve that, to fix that? <laughs> I said, well, let me, let me show you. And I, I talked about what it meant to be a Christ follower and walked them through. That night they became Christians. It was incredible. I loved it. I love getting to the point. In fact, I've done that several times in premarital counseling where I get to this section and I call it premarital evangelism now where I actually get to talk to them about what it means to be forgiven. What they learned through those weeks together is that what it looks like to be a Christian and to be a Christian in a marriage. And there's some things very radically different about us. And there should be. The big idea today, and here it is in your outline, God's plan for your marriage is for it to look like, sound like, and to be like Jesus. That's God's plan, is for your marriage to look like, sound like, and to be like Jesus. That's his plan for all of us. Now the passage I'm going to read from Colossians 3, let me be clear. What we're going to look at today applies to all of us. Married, single, wherever you're at in your life, this passage applies to you. It was not written specifically, not the part we're going to read now, specifically to married couples. But every time you read in the New Testament, anything that has to do with relationships, it applies to a marriage. Can we agree on that? 
that of course, if we're to be that way with one another, then certainly with the closest one another I have in my life, my spouse, this applies as well. And so with that in mind, again, I believe all of you will walk away with some stuff you can use today, but let's drill down, drill, drill down on this passage, <clears throat> excuse me, and look at first, uh, first, uh, first verse in Colossians chapter 3. Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you have died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Paul is talking basically about the fact that that's a, as Christ followers, we have new citizenship, we have a different identity, uh, we are now with Christ, we're in Christ, and he's, he uh, is giving some uh, precursor to what he's going to go into next. So I said, verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you've been taken, since you've taken off your old self with its practices and you've put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge of the image of its creator. And again, what Paul's saying here is, listen, we're different. We should be different. And we are now in Christ. And so part of that means we learn to walk in the practices of Christ. We learn to live like him. And we put off that old nature, that old way of living. We literally choose to not go there and to change and transform the way we live and relate to God and to others. Verse 11. Here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And he wraps up this particular piece of it, verse 14, and over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now again, there's a lot that Paul addresses there, a lot that he covers, and it's, it's a challenging passage for us. But in essence, what he's saying here is there are some things that we have now because of our relationship with Jesus, because of who we are in Christ, that changes the way we live and the way we ought to live and the way we walk in relationship with one another, and certainly again in our relationship with our spouses. You see, this passage, as I said, applies to all, but when you've got a Christ follower married to a Christ follower, it's kind of like a double espresso. It, it, it ought to be even more so, more obvious in when two people are living life together, it's like, wow, look at that. Look at what it looks like to be in love with Jesus and to walk in love with him and in Christ in a marriage. So there's some things I want to unpack today about what we can learn from this passage. I'm going to drill down and relate it directly to marriage, though again, it applies to all of us. Number one, your outline. Here's the first thing. Who we are in Christ matters in a purpose-driven marriage. Who we are in Christ matters. Now, it always matters if you're a Christian, but it absolutely matters in a marriage as well. The central truth about your marriage is that if you both are in Christ, both love Jesus, both have been redeemed and restored and renewed by him, then you have a new identity, who you are. You are no longer just a person who happened to be born on this planet and, and lived their own life. You are now a child of the king. You are a son or a daughter of God. Paul goes to great length here to identify the fact that you are different that you have a new identity. You are in Christ. So remembering who we are changes the relationship we have in our, in our marriage as well. 
when my wife was in the first service, and we've been married 43 plus years, when she does something that irritates me or I do something that irritates her, I don't just look at her and say, wow, she's just a jerk. Or more often than not, it's her saying that about me. Wow, I can't believe that he, you're such an idiot. You're such a jerk. No, we recognize that that may be a, a, a present reality, but it is not the overarching overall truth of us. She is a daughter of God. She is a child of God, and, and I am a son of God and a, and a prince in the kingdom. Now, that language, prince, princess, daughter, son, may seem kind of weird to you if you're not a Christ follower yet. But from the very beginning, the Bible makes it clear that when we enter in this relationship with Christ, he has, we are, in fact, a part of his family. And because of that, because he's the king of kings and lord of lords, that makes us his kids, and that makes us princes and princesses in the kingdom. Now, from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, first page, the first part of the Bible, you see that God gave Adam and Eve responsibility, and he gave them dominion over all the earth. He gave them rulership over the earth. From the beginning, God's plan for us and for those who are in him is for us to actually be part of his family, and that makes us royalty in his eyes. Who we are in Christ matters. Who we are matters a lot. When uh, I had a couple come to me several years ago, and they uh, needed marriage counseling, he didn't want to go see a marriage counselor. She did. She said, well, will you at least go see Kurt? And and, uh, he said, I'll go see Kurt. Kind of reluctantly, but he did. Showed up at my office, and my goal, I'm not a marriage therapist, and my goal was simply to listen, to give them some pastoral guidance, and I knew that they needed therapy, Christian counseling, and I, my goal was to listen and say, listen, you two need to get help. And here's a few names, pick from the list, and go get some counseling. That was my goal. But they came in, sat in my office, and for at least a half hour, it was ugly. He said, she said, it was back and forth, and it was, it was just emotionally really, really stinky. I mean, he said things about her, she said things about him, and it just went on and on and on and on for like 30 minutes. And finally I said, I, I, time out, wait a minute. I said, I, I have a question for you. Do you know that when you talk about each other that way, you're talking about a person who belongs to Jesus? Kind of looked at me. I said, when you treat each other the way you're treating each other right now, you are dishonoring a person who belongs to God, a child of the Father. You see, one of the things we have to understand is who we are because it changes things. It changes our perspective. And we're not looking at a spouse or a person as a problem or as a jerk or as somebody who's just, I got to put up with. We're looking at someone now who has great value, who's priceless to God, so much so that he sent his one and only son to die for that person. Who we are in Christ matters in a purpose-driven marriage. Your spouse may be a jerk at times, but more than that, he or she belongs to Jesus. And who we are changes what we do, which takes me to point number two. Remembering who we are affects what we do in a purpose-driven marriage. Why is understanding, I can take a lot more time talking about that, but why is understanding who we are, why does it matter? Why does Paul talk about it here? Why does he talk about it in other letters? He talks about it in Ephesians. A lot in Ephesians about who we are in Christ, in Jesus. The reason is because he knows that when we understand who we are and we begin to see our new identity in Christ and we begin to understand what he has done for us and what he wants to do through us, then it changes the way we relate to the people in our lives. Now, again, this is true for all of us, but it absolutely affects the way we treat our spouse. Looking into verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul says, because of who you are, you are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. But what's the therefore, therefore? Well, move back up to verse 11 again and look at it. He says, there's no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. 
Paul says, again, in the world, and he identifies social differences. He identifies religious differences, circumcised and uncircumcised. He identifies all sorts of different things, slave and free. He says, but when we are in Christ, all of those distinctions, all of those things that separate us go away, and we become one in Christ. We become one because of who we are. So in a Christian marriage, remembering who I am, remember who my wife is, means that I focus not on the differences between us, not on the things that, that cause tension, but I focus on the things that are true of both of us. So the way I speak about her, the way I speak to her, the way I treat her is remembering who she is. And uh, trust me, in my marriage, again, we've been married 43 years. We've been together as a couple for 45 years, longer than most of you have been probably alive and breathing. But what I can tell you is she's very different than I am. She came from a family with three sisters, and so all girls lived in one house most of her life, in one city most of her life. I have two brothers, younger brothers, a baby sister, who, by the way, is tougher than me, and uh, we moved all over the place. You take two radically different people and put them together in a relationship, in a marriage, one plus one person equals conflict every time in every marriage. But in our particular situation, it was even more dramatic because of the differences. But Paul is saying, remember who you are. Remember. And, rem and remembering who you are will change the way you treat each other. You don't see yourselves as, well, he's a, he's a barbarian. Or she's, you know, a, 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 not as high status as I am. No, we see them as someone in Christ and ourselves as such as well. And remembering who we are changes what we do. Paul says, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. It's an interesting phrase there. What he's saying is, uh, we make a choice. Most of you, I look around the room, and I'm not sure about anybody watching online this morning. I don't know what, what you're, what you're uh, dressed in. You might be in your PJ still, but most of you, I look around, you all chose to put on clothes today, which is good. Thank you for doing that. And you probably chose something you like, something that you wanted to wear at church. You made a choice this morning when you got up to clothe yourselves. That's exactly, it seems simple, but that's the language Paul is using here. Clothe, put on the things, the practices, the virtues that look like, sound like, and act like Jesus. And it's a cho conscious choice we have to make. This does not come naturally. When you're a little baby, when you're small and young, you don't think about putting clothes on. You're happy. My kids were always happy to run around butt naked. You know, so we have to choose to put on. Ephesians 4, Paul goes into great length about what we put off and put on. He says, put off the old nature, that old person, put off that thing and to put on the new nature, to put on Christ. And here he says the same thing in the first part of this chapter um, in, in Colossians chapter 3, that we're choosing to, to not be rageful or hateful or to lie to one. We're putting off those things and then we're putting on these five virtues that he mentions here. It's a conscious choice we make to get dressed, to, to practice the ways of Jesus. Part of what we do is we show compassion to one another. We care for each other. We are kind to one another. We're humble in our relationship with each other. We're gentle and we're patient. Now, I do pretty good on the first few of those. You know, I'm, I'm generally pretty compassionate and generally fairly kind and sort of humble, more or less. But I tell you, gentleness and patience are a big struggle for me. Those are ones I struggle with a lot. But Paul says these are the things that we need to choose and to choose wisely. In Romans 12.10, another passage Paul wrote, he says this, Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Again, a passage written to all Christ followers, to all of us, in all our relationships, but absolutely true and applicable in your marriage. 
Be devoted. Do you think devotion matters in a marriage? Of course it does. Be devoted to one another, he says. And in fact, honor one another above yourselves. Now, he's not saying don't care for yourself. He's not saying beat yourself up. He's not, he's not saying it doesn't matter what you do to you. But what he's saying is in Christ, there's a different way we're to live where we actually put the needs of others before our own, above ourselves. And he says we're to honor people. Now, honor is this great word. And essentially, I'll give you a short definition. It means to esteem or to value. To honor you, to honor my spouse, means I esteem and value her. I treat her like she really is important because she is. And I speak to her like she really matters because she does. And I honor, I esteem, I value her. And the Bible says above myself more than I value or esteem myself. It's a challenge for us in our culture, isn't it? Philippians 2, 3 and 4, Paul said this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. There it is again. Be humble, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. We are called to put on these practices, these virtues of Christ in our relationships and certainly, again, in our marriage. And it's not easy to do. It's not easy to live this out. I know that there are many opportunities for us to practice this, but we often miss them. I'll just give you a few things to consider. One of the ways that I, uh, I honor my wife, and I know this is antiquated and not something that's generally done by most anymore, but I open the door for my wife. I open the house door, the car door, whatever it is. I, I open the door, and, and I honor her above myself. Now, I, I mentioned that I'll, a couple of years ago. I do something like that, and some lady came up to me afterwards. Man, I'm quite capable of opening my own door. Thank you very much. And I said, I, it's not about capability. My wife, listen, if you know her, trust me, she's way more capable in every, almost every way than I am. She's a thousand percent more capable at just about everything than I am. It's not about capability. It's about honor. I'm going to put you first. I'm just going to open it now. I won't stand in the parking lot and watch all of you as you leave today. So relax. I, you know, I'm not, this is not, some, I, this is me. I'm not putting that on you, but I am saying this. How do you honor your spouse? How do you honor him? How do you honor her? Maybe in your household, there's a natural, you know, way you generally do things. Well, he always takes out the trash. She always puts away the clean dishes. I don't know. Well, maybe one day you surprise your spouse and you do both. You look for ways to honor them. The way you talk to your spouse, the way you talk about your spouse matters. It's a way that we honor them. It's a way that we show that you really are of value to me. And there are lots and lots of ways to do that. When it comes down to gentleness and uh, patience, again, I admit to you that I am not really good at that. I am not naturally given to patience. In fact, uh, when my wife drives, it drives me absolutely crazy. And I, she, has, she gave me permission to, to share that with you. But it's true. I, re, I have to put on patience and gentleness when I'm driving in, in, in her car. Because... She doesn't honk enough. <laughs> and I have been known, and it really pushes her buttons when I do this, to reach over and honk the horn while she's driving. She, boy, I advise a redhead. She gets hot quick. It's like, don't do that when I'm driving. And, and uh, she never takes the same way twice. She has this crazy thing, she, which is probably makes perfect sense to a lot of you. But she thinks that it's good for the mind to always have something new and fresh rather than get into a rut. So she rarely takes the same way home. She'll come down here one way this morning, and she'll go home a completely different way. And when I'm driving with her, that drives me crazy. Woman, why don't you just, just, just take 
the same way you have. This, there's a right way. There's a way that seems right in demand, but the end of there is death. I even quote scriptures to her, which is inappropriate, by the way, because it's not applied right. And I, she goes, honey, it's, it's okay. I'm driving. I'm driving. I'm not a patient man. I will admit that to you. But it's an opportunity for me to practice, to put on the virtue of gentleness and patience. I don't know what it is in your marriage, what it is in your relationship, but I do know this. The Bible, not me, the Bible says, put these things on. Practice. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. Put those on. Make it a choice. And the, the big deal I got to emphasize here is that doesn't normally come naturally. It's something you have to choose to do. That's why Paul says, clothe yourselves. I'm going to do this right now. <gasps> I'm going to take... Um, I'm going to put up, I'm going to choose to be kind and patient with my spouse right now. Put those things on. Remembering who you are affects what you do. Listen, remembering who your spouse is affects the way you treat him or her. Okay, one more thing. Number three, a purpose-driven marriage practices a lifestyle of forgiveness. Now, you thought the last one was tough. And I, I intentionally use the word here, practices, because it's something you're going to work on the rest of your life. It's something you never quite get completely a handle on. You practice, you keep practicing, and it's a lifestyle. It is a way of life where you forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive again. Look at verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Anybody else find that verse extremely challenging? Paul says, bear with each other. Why does he say that? Because we're unbearable. Because we're humans. Listen, again, if you live with somebody who's breathing, they're going to push your buttons from time to time. They are not always going to be. I love watching, you know, newlyweds or people who are not quite married yet. And they're just like, oh, he's so wonderful. He's loving so much and it's so good. And, you know, she doodles his name and he talks about how hot she is and it's so great. And, they, and then they get married, you know, and it's so exciting, so much fun. And about a year later, so how's it going? Oh, it's good. <laughs> and about six, seven years later, hey, how's things going in marriage? Ah, oh, we're together. You know, the bubble gets burst pretty quickly. And by the way, listen to me, that's normal. Living in a state of constant romance is not normal. Living in a state of, the, of constant marital bliss is not even close to being normal. You're going to have challenges. One person plus one person equals conflict. It equals challenge. It just does. And there are going to be many, 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 many opportunities, thousands Thousands of opportunities over decades of marriage where you're going to have an opportunity to choose to forgive, to let it go. What does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness literally means to let go. In fact, one word picture I love is it's untying the knot. I like to think of untying the knot of like a knot in a hose because it obstructs the flow of life. And to forgive someone means I am letting go. I'm letting go of my right for revenge. I'm letting go of my right to be right. I'm letting go of, of my judgment or my sentence against them. I am untying the knot. I'm releasing them from my judgment. That's what it means to forgive. It doesn't mean to forget. To for, for, forget. It doesn't mean that what they did doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that there are no consequences to their choices. What it means is I am releasing you. I'm releasing my wife. She's releasing me of the burden, of the judgment of the revenge that I, I want to have against her, she wants to have against me. It means to let go. 
It means to literally walk in a lifestyle of forgiveness today, tomorrow, and next week. Bear with one another. Forgive whatever grievances. I love that little phrase, whatever grievances. Because <laughs> you know what? There's, it's like, well, I could forgive him but everything but. No, no. The Bible says whatever. I love that Paul just really makes it clear. Whatever. Whatever grievances, forgive. And here's the context. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We don't forgive out of a vacuum. We don't forgive just because we're really big-hearted, wonderful people. We forgive because we have been forgiven. If you are a Christ follower, you've been forgiven. And so out of that reality, out of that recognition, out of that understanding, I forgive because I've been forgiven. Forgive as the Lord forgave you, Paul said. I had a lady come to me. It was after church. This is quite a while ago. And I love it when after church, someone comes up to me and they just blast me. And it's like two minutes after I got done saying, hallelujah, Jesus, you're good, you know, whatever. And she gets up and just, blah. She says, I am so angry at my husband. I just want to kill him. I can't believe it. He is so stupid. She goes, poop. Okay, I, I got it. You're upset. And I said, well, what happened? And she says, oh, he made this horrible, got it, some pyramid scheme. I don't know. Got, he says, we've lost everything. All our money we lost our home. He's, we just lost everything. We are just, we're, we're broke. He's lost, he's cost us everything because he made a stupid, foolish decision. And I don't think I can ever forgive him. Well, I stepped back because they didn't want her to hurt me with what I was going to say next. <laughs> and I said, have you ever been forgiven by God for an unwise decision you made? Well, yes, but that's not the point. I said, yeah, it's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. We forgive as we've been forgiven. And I can pretty much promise you that at some level, just about anything that he's done to you, you've probably done to God. About anything you've, you, you, you've you experienced in this life, you know, because you've been sinned against by someone else, in some way you've probably done the very sim, similar or same thing in your relationship to God or others. And that's why the Bible says, that's what Paul says, and this isn't the only place where it says it. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. We put on again, we choose forgiveness. We choose a lifestyle of forgiveness because we are forgiven. And then look at verse 14. And Paul says, above all these things, over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Paul says, all those things that I just talked about are pretty challenging, but above all of that, the thing that ties it all together is love. And if you understand Paul, if you've read in context again, Paul's message is talk, his, the great teacher on, on love. He's referring to the love that God has for us, the love that we have for him, and the love we're to have for one another. Every week in this series, I've talked about how it comes down, back to this. Are you loved? Do you love? Will you love? Will you experience the love of God? And then will you choose to love those around you? Paul says, above all these other virtues, the five things he just mentioned, Above that, and then forgiveness. He said, put on this. Love one another. Love God and love one another. Why? Because love binds them all together. I'm convinced of this more and more. And of, of late, God's just been speaking to me a lot about this issue of the, the, the love that we need to have for him. I, I just wrote about it just this last week, you know, in my blog, that, we, that how hot is your love for him? How passionate is your love for Jesus? Because that's what's going to sustain you and help you through and help you continue to grow in all these other areas. Love for him. In fact, I've been praying. You can pray with me. I'm, I've been seriously thinking about doing something I've never done before, ever, in all my years of being a pastor. 
I'm, I'm thinking about doing, a, for 2019, a year-long series called 52 Moments of Love. 52 Moments of Love. And each week, we're going to take a look at a dis- different aspect of God's love for us, our love for him, our love for one another, our love for our enemies, our love for our friends, our love for our family. The, the Bible, by the way, says a lot about love. It's kind of amazing. But why? Because I understand, I'm beginning to understand more than I ever had before, this is everything about everything. This is where we have to find the sustaining power that we need to put on all those other things is as we love God and love one another. We choose. We choose. I'm going to tell you what I know about a purpose-driven marriage, and I'm going to wrap this up. To begin with, it's not easy. <laughs> if, I think you've probably figured that out already, haven't you? Wow, uh, that really doesn't sound like a lot of fun. It's not always fun. It ain't, it ain't always easy. Having a purpose-driven, God-honoring, Christ-following-in-Jesus marriage is challenging. And it's challenging when both people are Christ followers. It's really challenging when one's not and one is. But I'm here to tell you that even in that situation, we're still called to be like Jesus. We still, even if you've got a spouse who hates God and hates you, we are still challenged to put on these things and to be like him. It's not always easy. The other thing I know is that it takes a sticky attitude to survive. And what I mean by that is don't quit too quickly. I know a lot of you have been through divorce. I know a lot of your stories. And I want to quickly say, you know, there are a thousand what ifs. I understand that. And I understand that there are legitimate reasons for divorce. I understand that life happens. I get that. And never do I want anybody to ever leave here feeling guilty or shame about anything. But if you're still married, I'm, I'm, to that person sitting next to you, I want you to hear this. Make sure that you try and do everything you can. Have a sticky attitude. Don't quit too quick. Give time for, to God to work in you and in your spouse. And here's why. The third thing I know is because it's always worth it. It's always worth it when we work hard. Even if, and I'll say this, and I, I didn't say this in the first service, but I'll go out on a limb here. Even if that marriage ends, it's still worth it for you to be like Jesus in your marriage now. It's still God's plan to develop you in your character, to grow you, to mature you, to help you become more and more like him. So no matter what, there's no out for us. For those of us who call Jesus our Savior, there's no out for us. We are called to be who we are in him. Remembering that changes the way we live and relate to one another. And part of that is walking in this lifestyle of forgiveness and love, where we forgive as we've been forgiven and we love as we've been loved. Bow your heads, would you? I want to ask you, in fact, to bow your heads and close your eyes right now and offer some privacy to people. Because I'm going to give uh, some of you an opportunity this morning to respond in a way that I think will be important for you. Now, again, please, every head bowed, every eye closed, offer the privacy that you would expect or that you would want. But if you're here today, and maybe your marriage is really in a tough spot, or you're having a hard time in you know, uh, the relationship that you have with your spouse. Maybe there's unforgiveness. Maybe those virtues of gentleness and patience and kindness and, and compassion have not been something you've walked out in your life or maybe it's something you're not experiencing from your spouse right now. Listen, I understand how difficult it is for you. I know, I know. Laura and I have been through hell and back in our marriage. I know what that's like. I know what it looks like. I know how difficult it is. But if you're here today, what I'm going to ask you to do is make a choice. 
Make a choice. If you're married, will you today say, God, I, I know that's truth. I need to forgive. I know I need to walk in those virtues. I need to practice the way. I need to be more like you, Jesus, in my marriage. And if that's you and you, and you know you need that, you need God's help, I'm going to ask you to do something in just a moment. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand. Like, Why do I have to do that? You don't have to. And again, I'm asking everybody just to keep your eyes, just everybody, keep your eyes closed right now. But what I'm going to ask you to do, why do I need to raise a hand? Well, by raising your hand, you're, you're being humble. One of those virtues we talked about was humility. And you're saying, yep, God, I acknowledge the fact that I need help. I need help in my marriage. I need you. And there's something about acknowledging that, humbly acknowledging that before God that begins you to take you down that path of transformation and healing. And so if you're here today and you know you need change in you and in your marriage and you want prayer, would you just real quick put your hand up? Just raise your hand. Yeah, all over the room. Good. Great. Maybe you're here today and you've not yet started your life as a Christ follower. And you've not begun your life of surrender to him. You haven't accepted what he did for you on that cross where he paid for your sins. And today you realize, wow, you know what? Like my friends who I took to marriage counseling four weeks into, they realized, yeah, we can't do this without Jesus. I guess we, we, need, we need to be Christians. We want to be Christ followers. And we need to be forgiven. And they realize that. Maybe you realize it right now. You need the forgiveness of God in your life. It starts with a choice. Everything I'm talking about today is choice, choice, choice. That relationship begins with a choice you make to say, yes, God, I need you. Yes, I need a Savior. And if you're here today, and that's you, I'm going to pray a simple prayer right now. What I'm going to ask you to do is make this prayer yours. Father, forgive me. I re realize I do need a Savior. I need Jesus. I need help. I can't do this on my own. I've tried it for too long my way. And right here, right now, I'm surrendering to you. Thank you, Jesus, for surrendering your life to me, for me on that cross, that you died for my sins. And I, right here, right now, receive your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. I ask you to take my life, to take my heart, to live in me, and to help me, because I choose here and now to follow you. Now, if that's you in your own heart, to say, yep, God, that's me. The Bible says that moment you say yes to him, you become his child, you're his now let me pray for those that raised their hands earlier. Father, for those who humble themselves before you and before me, who say, yep, I need help in my marriage. God, I pray right now that you would breathe into their soul, uh, that you would breathe life into their hearts, that you would help them, Lord, remember who they are, that they would leave here today recognizing better than they have perhaps for a long time who they are in you and who their spouse is. And that that remembering would change the way they relate to their spouse, the way they see them, the way they treat them, the way they speak to them and about them. And that you would help them right now. And they'll have to do it again tomorrow, Lord, probably this afternoon. But help them right now to choose to put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, love. And to wrap them up in those godly, holy virtues as they choose to put that on and put off the old. And empower them to live the life you've called them to live now in their marriage. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. We're going to finish with one last song. It's uh, one of my favorites. And it, it's a song that really does remind us that God is good. He's a good, good father. Let's worship. I'll come back and wrap it up.